What's up, my miners of intelligence and consciousness? I'm Rick Brooks, and this is Rick's Mind. Today with me, I have guest Ford Fisher, who is an independent journalist. What's up, brother? Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Dude, it's a pleasure, man. I really like I really like your your work. And I think people like you, independent journalists, are very, very important in these kind of crazy times. And I think uh, the best way, as always, to start a an interview or a podcast is like let the listeners who know who you are. So, like, how did you get into this and kind of walk us through the things that you've covered? Yeah, so News to Share is basically a platform for primary source uh, documentary video, and I can define that term in a bit, but uh, of political activism for the most part here in the United States. And so I co-founded it uh, while I was in college with another then student uh, named Trey Yanks, who is now an international reporter. He's currently reporting in uh, Ukraine. Um, But so since graduating college, it's been my full-time job basically running this company where myself and freelancers for me uh, do raw video documentation uh, of political activism, both for uh, consumers online to to watch and be able to have kind of a a bias free you know just raw video of what's going on um, presentation as well as to be able to take that footage and uh, get it used in network news as well as documentaries and so the sort of vision is that um, you may remember from you know everybody learns in grade school about the difference between primary sources and secondary sources and sort of my criticism of Uh, the way that media has generally gone is that uh, things have pushed toward a lot more kind of commentary-driven journalism where, you know, you watch CNN or something like that, and when a given story occurs, you have some commentator on the left and some commentator on the right or whatever. (laughs) Basically, people opining about the meaning of the news that they are telling you. And so uh, the news media presents to you sort of how to think, or these are the uh, kind of range of opinions about something, and that's framed as journalism. And that can be interesting, uh, but it is what I would call secondary source journalism. And I think that for the purposes of educating audiences about what's actually happening, um, for the most part, it is more valuable when you can make the primary sources available. So in the case of something like a document, you know, a memo, a change in law or something, uh, having the original document be accessible to your audience is valuable, right? What does the actual text of the law say? Whatever. That's a primary source. Um, when we're reporting on a speech, you know, that some politician is given, uh, you know, a secondary source documentation is someone talking about the meaning of the speech, whereas a primary source documentation is here's video of the speech. And so I try to do this for political activism, where I am not someone who is going on YouTube and telling you what to think about a political protest, whether they're right or wrong or whatever. Um, the idea is that left, right, outside of that spectrum, whatever, uh, that I have my um, contributors and myself film those things and just put out raw footage uh, absent any kind of commentary. And it's not just that it's supposed to exist in a vacuum, that its purpose is only to be uh, just that, <laughs> but that from there you can get those sorts of secondary source analysis. People can analyze that. People can find what the truth means to them, but they have to start at truth in the first place. Yeah, 100%, man. I, that is very important. You're, you're, you're showing people the raw data of what's actually happening. 
and in real time, right? And and then you put it out there, and you can make that you can make the decision yourself. You can you can see which side's right. Um, what what where have you done this? Like what what kind of stories um, have you told? I mean, I know, but I kind of want the listeners to know, like, kind of some of the things that you've shot and put out there. For sure. So when I was sort of starting this off uh, again with a friend from college at the time. Um, we primarily were focused on um, the types of political activism that was happening then, and this was 2014, 2015. So pre-Trump, Trump is not a political phenomenon yet. Trump is still mm-hmm. uh, kind of a, a, a humorous theory about what if that guy ran for president? Like he keeps, you know, joking that he will. <laughs> yeah. um, and the activism during that period of of toward the end of the Obama administration was largely people uh, sort of flanking Obama from his left. Um, and so we had a lot of um, activism that we filmed that was anti-war um, from a leftist perspective. Um, you know, anti-torture, for example, protests against Guantanamo Bay, um, as well as, uh, you know, against his deportations, uh, right? There was a lot of interest, again, among from among what I would call like principled progressives, right? People who are, who are critical of Obama, even though he has a D next to his name. Um, so we had a lot of that kind of demonstration filming people basically criticizing, but, but still doing activism. And at that point, uh, the political right had not really learned street activism yet. Um, so that will come a little bit later, but uh, a big sort of breakthrough time period uh, then was that there were the protests in Ferguson and Baltimore uh, following the police killings of Michael Brown and Freddie Gray. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those were both situations that uh, myself and uh, the co-founder um, covered by, again, going out to those situations and basically just filming what was happening and the way that the police uh, were responding to them. And sort of as an example of the way that that kind of footage is used, my footage from Baltimore, in addition to being used in documentaries, uh, was actually used in We Own This City, which is an HBO show that uh, had its premiere two nights ago. Um, Three shots of ours are actually in the intro title sequence of that. So they'll play all six episodes. And that um, that show basically goes through uh, the corruption of the gun trace task force. And again, you know, could talk for a a whole podcast probably about that situation. But uh, put very, very simply, um, we on a couple of occasions filmed some of the um, people who ended up being implicated in a federal indictment for RICO and all of that. Um, And so they ended up uh, using that footage in this show. Um, Moving forward from there, though, uh, really as the Trump movement began to happen, uh, the right started doing political activism. And so the sort of being able to cover all sides really uh, came more to fruition in that sort of 2016 and on um, time period. And so some some notable situations that I was able to cover very close up in this style was, uh, you know, the inauguration of President Trump uh, drew both Trump supporters there for him, as well as uh, enormous um, and sometimes vandalous uh, counter-protests, um, as well as mass arrests and massive police response uh, that came from it. Um, the violence that occurred in Charlottesville and the events leading up to and following it, which has been widely sort of described as the summer of hate. Yeah. Um, and more recently, uh, January 6th, of course. So over the course of uh, the few months from November 3rd of 2020 to sort of January 6, 2021, nearly every day I was filming and had contributors filming uh, the situations of people protesting, counter-protesting over their viewpoints, over uh, 
the legitimacy of the election, but really watching a moment when uh, democracy was sort of in crisis. Um, and I continue to cover the sorts of demonstrations that are happening today, although I'll say that um, much like the Obama era, uh, right now I think that there are some certain tensions that are perhaps a little bit quieter for now, um, but political activism has decreased a bit. So there, you know, in, environmental policy, for example, hasn't uh, changed so much, but it's been harder for environmental activists to get people out on the streets. It's it's more like dozens uh, or maybe a hundred people who can come out to an adversarial environmental event as opposed to, you know, the thousands that might've come out when they had the uh, the orange man yeah, <laughs> to yeah, be protesting yeah. against. So what 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 kind of tensions do you think are lurking beneath the, sur- beneath the surface at the moment? Sure. And I mean, that's a that's a big question, but I will uh, briefly say that, you know, polling kind of shows that the political viewpoints that more or less led to January 6th haven't actually really gone away or changed. Right. So Mm. January 6th fundamentally uh, was about people believing that the that democracy has died, that that they that they actually won the election and. Uh, that through some kind of fraud, conspiracy, et cetera, uh, that it was taken from them. And they sort of, and ultimately that that turned into violence, that anger translated into violence. Mm-hmm. And when polled, uh, Republicans for the most part have not changed their attitude about that since then. And the approval rating for Trump among Republicans hasn't really changed. Uh, so accordingly, with Trump saying that he is going to uh, run again. He he has all but said that, right? It's like he was very clear. He said, "I think you're all going to be very happy with my decision, which I've already made." So Trump is <laughs> oh, <laughs> Trump Jesus. at least says that he's going to run again. Yeah, you could offer some theories as to why he might say that, even if it wasn't true. You know, it is possible that a catastrophic health event could change that plan. It is possible that he might decide not to for some other reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally, he is saying that he will. And even if he doesn't, his endorsement means a lot to GOP candidates, and so. Um, it is, I think, fairly likely that even if Trump wasn't the nominee, it would be because Trump endorsed somebody else, a sort of proto-Trump, to yeah. uh, follow him. Um, and so I don't want to get too much into predictions, but I would say that with it looking like it will be a contest between um, Trump or a Trump-endorsed person versus Biden or a Biden-endorsed person, um, you would uh, likely have somewhat of a repeat of, of 2020, some, something that is perceived as a rematch. And uh, I think that it is entirely possible that, uh, especially if it's a close call, that you could have essentially the same the same conditions set up. Trump has been telling his people that the election was stolen from him and he still believes that, and so, so do they. Yeah. Um, you would likely have the same sorts of arguments uh, being made by whoever ostensibly loses against whoever ostensibly wins in 2024. Um, and so I think that, that that tension, the fact that probably 50 or 60 million people in this country fundamentally believe that democracy has failed, um, you know, could really, really erupt when they will have been able to sit on that for four years as opposed yeah. to only a couple months between November 3rd and January 6th. I definitely would agree with you. I, I am... <sighs> That's that's something that I haven't even really thought about that much. I'm kind of in my own little world, right? Just hanging out, working out, producing a podcast. But when I start thinking about the fucking chaos that we're going to have during this election cycle, 
it's it's exciting to me because people just lose their goddamn minds over it. And I'm like, I mean, it really it doesn't doesn't matter really who's in office. Like, how much does your life really change, right? Uh, and and none of my political views, like I'm pretty much politically homeless outside of like the Libertarian Party, but they're crazy as well. But I like like I'm, I'm a big fan of like small government. I I don't know. I, I'm not a hundred percent sure that Biden would run again. Like, what kind of you're you're much closer to these things than I am, so I'm kind of curious. Like, what, do you do you have any? You've got your your finger kind of on the pulse. Is that something that he's talking about or considering? Like, what are you? What kinds of things are you hearing? I I've heard sort of mixed reports on how clear he's been about with his inner circle about that. So I mean, it's not like I have any particular uh, level of insight, but I but from the stories that I've read, it sounds like he's basically been telling advisors that he's good to go. But even if he didn't, if he decided that he wants to be a one-term president, and again, at his age, it would be pretty normal for uh, some kind of health, you know, mm-hmm. health event or health evaluation um, to to change his decision. He could fully be prepared for it right now, but decide, you know, a year from today, you know, I just don't feel like I have another four years in me. Um, but with that being said, as the president, he is the leader of uh, not only the country, but the Democratic Party. And so in all likelihood, much like I'm saying that for Trump, uh, you know, his endorsement would go a really long way. It would be really, really hard for the RNC to nominate someone who is not Trump endorsed. In the same way, um, I think it would be pretty challenging for an insurgent Democratic candidate to uh, to primary Joe Biden or to be victorious over a Joe Biden um, endorsed person, right? So so you could have somebody like Bernie uh, run in a primary against, say, Kamala Harris, uh, who is endorsed by Biden in this fictional scenario or this mm-hmm. you know yeah, projective yeah. scenario. Um, and I, I think it would be an enormous uphill battle for for whoever is running to justify that run, especially because much of the rhetoric would be focused around you're just going to help Trump win. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that whether it ends up being uh, Trump Biden or Trump versus Harris or you know Biden versus DeSantis or something, ideologically that's more or less what we're probably looking at a Trump styled, a Trump ideological person versus a you know, centrist presenting kind of, uh, like Democrat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I haven't been alive that long. Right. I'm 30 years old and I have never seen the level of attachment to a person outside of the, tr- the right. Trumpers. Like it is fucking wild. It's just, it's, it's complete chaos. Like the, he has, it's almost a cult in my opinion, right? It is like, there's a, there's just, there's this fever, uh, this like, he's kind of like the king of the assholes and love him or hate him. Like he's a very polarizing character. I liked when he was president. I was never not entertained. I laughed all the time, but I, the division that he seems to cause in the country, I'm, I'm not super pumped about him, uh, necessarily running, um, once again, but, uh, I mean, I'm I'm sure that we're going to get it, and it, it is going to be one of those crazy things. And you'll have a lot of things to cover. Of that, I am pretty positive. So I will uh, just something to add on that. I think that when I have covered Trump supporters, Trump rallies, etc., as opposed to most other types of single issue events that I cover, where the divergence is in beliefs about sort of other stuff. And then they kind of all unify around one issue. And with a lot of other candidates, the candidate is sort of trying to represent 
the feelings of people that are already out there or trying to represent a new a new way right so bernie sanders has you know this is the, these are uncharted waters for you know the politics that he's trying to present but he wants to convince people of them but fundamentally what he's trying to convince them of is his sort of philosophy of of you know being a social democrat um but uh with trump it's not like that or like, say, Ron Paul trying to con- turn people on to libertarianism. Trump is turning people on to Trump. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. So he is a lot of things to a lot of people. And so I meet people who identify with with extremely divergent actual points of view on um, sort of why they support him. Uh and and yet they kind of you know they form around his exact personality like I he know. is the single issue himself. I have never seen it's brilliant. It's like like the, the media turned him into a rock star by just trying to trash him and you can't he's got that New Yorker like I don't give a fuck attitude and he just wouldn't be stopped. I've never seen anything like it's been it's been fascinating to watch uh you did mention someone I we I mean you don't mention Ron Paul on this podcast and not get a <laughs> yeah, shout just out. casual Ron Paul <laughs> <drama>. <laughs> I fucking love that man so much. That's the only time in my life, I was in college, the only time in my life I was like, that's not true, but one of the very few times I've been so balls deep into politics and I I was devastated when he lost, I think it was the, the Iowa caucus. Uh, he had some hope mm. going into that. Uh, no one would ever ask him questions when he was, when they were doing the debates because he would destroy everyone. I really, I was really hopeful that he would become a president. John, no, not going to let you talk. And no, I'm just kidding. Come on, Brent. What's up, John? <laughs> I was just going to say, I worked for Ron Paul's campaign in 2008. So <laughs> there you go. Really? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was the wow. first election that I was eligible to vote. And I was just like, Okay, that guy. And so I, I ended up signing up and uh, I was a delegate to the uh, Indiana Republican uh, convention for him. Uh, there was some hinky, st- obviously hinky stuff that went on that, you know, I'd be happy right. to talk about off camera. <laughs> yeah. We weren't, we weren't ready for the, the, the Ron Paul, the Ron Paul revolution, man. I was, I was really hope, really hopeful. Um, so you, what are some of the extremist groups like you've kind of documented during your career? Yeah, so I will, uh, I'm happy to share one that comes to mind, but I will say that in general, I try not to attach the term extremist to any fair. particular group. That's fair. So That's I cover fair. the extremities of American uh, politics because the most extreme people about anything, right? Some are going to be represented by themselves going out onto the onto the street. But in some ways, the people you're you're documenting are very much a part of the American democratic process. And so um, I think that the label of extremist, um, in some ways, it might uh, escalate them. Um, but in other ways, right, you know, it could be argued that they're actually quite representative of, of sort of what's going on or the direction things have gone, right? Some people would argue that Bernie's followers are extreme. Some people mm-hmm. would argue that Trump's followers are extreme, right? Like, <laughs> so it all depends on uh, perspective. But, um, you know, I will certainly say that, like, Filming in Charlottesville, for example, really brought, I think, a coalition of uh, the most extreme groups. So the concept of that event, you know, it had been titled Unite the Right. And in theory, what it was supposed to do was unite um, basically hard right groups that were um, apathetic about uh, like race to 
groups that were explicitly neo-Nazi, white nationalist, um, you know, the types of people chanting Jews will not replace us and free Dylan Roof and just, you know, extremely, like, wildly racist points of view. Um, And what was sort of interesting about that situation, beyond, of course, the, you know, the tragedy of the amount of violence and, and death that occurred... Um, but in terms of, you know, po- political coalition being something that I really focus on sort of studying uh, who is capable of going out and and working with who else and what issues can they set aside for what joint issues, right? Unite the Right in Charlottesville was supposed to uh, bring together all of these different diverging, you know, perspectives of the far right. But the um, leading up to it, as certain groups such as the Proud Boys found out what uh, kinds of other groups were going to be there, the hardcore neo-Nazis and so forth, and they didn't want to be associated. What kind of happened leading up to it is that the uh, groups perceived as less extreme sort of shaved off of it, and so that it was uh, largely uh, groups that were just openly happy to be labeled white nationalists and were you know white nationalists and neo-Nazis and so forth that showed up, and, and those handful of people who, even if they don't identify with those labels, they knew felt... F- fully well what they were attending. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's, it also had the opposite ultimate effect from what the organizers were trying to do because so with their, their claim being that the event is to unite the right in reality, following um, what happened there, there was, you know, violence that took place, but there weren't, and people died, uh, but speeches weren't given. And, you know, people were finger pointing over essentially the failure of organizing that had led to uh, that mayhem. And so in the aftermath of it, as these guys are getting arrested and some are going to prison, they're getting sued into oblivion. Um, and actually, more recently, a civil lawsuit um, basically accusing them of conspiring to commit uh, civil rights violations based on race. Um, you know, succeeded. And so, uh, you know, basically they now have financial judgments against them. It's really led to them actually finger pointing at one another over why it happened. And so the actual, so if you keep track of the people who actually uh, attended sort of as leadership at that, at that event, um, many of them spend their time blaming the others um, saying, you know, he, he's responsible for the event or he's responsible for it going wrong or turning violent or whatever. And so it really had the opposite effect. And whereas the alt-right was getting all of this media attention, you know, the New York Times is writing these sort of silly stories like the the neo-Nazi next door and making mm-hmm. observations about, wow, this neo-Nazi, he eats dinner and has a wife like other human beings. Like, mm-hmm. look how look how interesting, right? Like that was kind of their their payday. That was their their at their most popular, all the media is talking about them. And then following Charlottesville, the conversation about them was pretty much exclusively tied to to Charlottesville. And they no longer were kind of cool, um, even in their own in their own eyes. Their their movements basically fell apart. Some of them managed to rebrand, but for the most part, that fell fell away. And in the time after that, groups that were of the hard right, even even groups that were pretty uh, open and proud about their participation in street violence, um, managed to succeed when they distanced themselves from the alt right. So I would basically say, for example, the Proud Boys exploded in membership. Uh, from 2018 through 2020, and then uh, essentially up until January 6th, um, where they were saying, you know, look, we have a an Afro-Cuban, uh, you know, 
chairman. We are uh, civic nationalists. We fight for America, but we're not racist is what they would you know say mm-hmm. um, in the media and so forth. And that was a message that uh, kind of got them much more included in the Trump group, right? The Trump supporters were like, we, you know, oh, those people at Unite the Right, like that we've never seen anything like that. That's not part of us. The Proud Boys are welcome with open arms at Trump events. And so that kind of uh, shift in the rhetoric of who was out on the streets uh, seemed to really change. And of course, it changed again after January 6th. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you do bring you also you corrected me and I, I thank you for that, because, you know, that is a piece of rhetoric that I'm using extremist groups like I don't know any of these people. I haven't done the research on these groups. Right. I'm not as versed. I think that's very, very important. Language is very, very important. And so I appreciate you doing that, man, because I'm not I, I don't. Th- the whole ethos of this show are things are stranger than they seem and that you need to look into things and, and try and understand one another and, and talk. Right. I think that's super important. Um, which kind of brings me to the next point, whereas like independent journalism, like are you, is this kind of the Renaissance of this movement that's going on? Because a lot of, a lot of the large media outlets have lost trust. And if, I mean, hopefully, I don't trust them. I don't even watch the news. There's nothing good on the news ever. It's all (laughs) fucking depressing. And I feel like it's a giant, almost like a conspiracy to fear monger people to keep us sick in our minds and spread fear. And I think I look at, I view fear as an illness in your mind. Like it, it, it paralyzes you, keeps you from making good decisions. It, it turns someone that you don't know into the other and then you're afraid like that the virus that just went around was the worst thing because people were afraid of one another they didn't want to talk they didn't want to get sick so i think as i was stating before it's very important um to have independent journalism and like where like where do you kind of see this going in the future do you think that most of us will will consume media that way or kind of walk us through this 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 part of your industry Yeah. So, I mean, I think I see myself as sort of filling in a gap to be um, a solution or an alternative to the kind of issue that you just described. The the way that I interpret the trend of the mainstream media is that I think they they tend to benefit on all sides from the idea that there are only two sides. Um, This very binary representation of uh, you know, there's the left and the right, and it serves sort of a couple of purposes. Firstly, it it creates kind of this othering where you have to choose you're on red team or you're on blue team. Yeah. And, you know, and there isn't common ground between you, but it's all but it also has the effect of uh, preventing there from being, you know, any other perspectives, right? If they if they can can limit the direction of what you're allowed to talk about into the, uh, you know, whatever Overton window, the two sides that they present, you're not allowed to go outside the bounds of that in any given direction. So it sort of uh, defends the existing power structure by giving you a limited um, uh, amount of space in which to debate. Uh, and it gives you that kind of like feeling of anger when they get to report on, look at what the other team is doing and look at how wonderful your team is doing, right? They, you can feel like you're patting yourself on the back when it's your side and you know, whatever. Um, again, I think that the world is not that binary, right? No. People are just more complex in their beliefs, their attitudes, their identities, right? People are just, people are just complicated. And I think you learn a lot more about those sorts of perspectives by being out on the street, actually talking to them. Um, and I think that there is a thirst for that. So your question was sort of like, where do you see the main, the, you know, the media going as a trend? Um, 
you know, I think that the problem is that there is an enough of an appetite that uh, for that kind of like, you know, just tell me, like, just watch Rachel Maddow or Sean Hannity and just hear about how the other side is like shit <laughs> and how your side is really like, yeah. like, you know, you just get to pat yourself on the back and be like, oh, thank God I'm not that I'm not that team. Yeah. Right. Um, enough people watch that stuff that that's profitable and that would really have to change. I think that there would have to sort of be a societal awakening to some extent uh, that that kind of news isn't um, isn't actually that beneficial or isn't actually that informative. Um, so for me, I'm presenting it kind of to whoever will listen. And what's interesting is that I am obviously out here, as I'm describing all of this, I'm criticizing the style of the mainstream media, but I also license to them. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so the mainstream media, um, you know, if they miss something that ends up being important to what they want to say, uh, I license to them and I'm happy to do that. The value that I see and the kind of like interrelationship, and it's something that I would encourage other independent journalists to be thinking about, is that it's my viewpoint is not like I've seen some animosity where independent journalists will say like mainstream media and they they mean something that they kind of hate, right? It's almost like this binary of are you independent or are you mainstream? Yeah. And I wouldn't encourage that line of thinking either. I think that it actually improves them to have primary source work that can hold them accountable. When CNN goes and covers a rally, say they go and film and they, they film some interviews and maybe they film all the speeches or whatever, and then they package it into two and a half minutes uh, for air, the, the audience doesn't get to see what they cut it all down from, right? So they're going to probably cut it down into the most divisive comments, the most ridiculous things that the speaker says, the most extreme things that the interviewees say. Um, and so what you're left with is an extreme view of what that situation was. Um, when I cover something, um, I live stream it beginning to end um, when I'm able to. Sometimes cell services interrupts it and whatever. But for the most part, I try to live stream events beginning to end. And the, my philosophy about that is that when I then put out a summary where I cut down into maybe 10 minutes of raw video, no narration, no commentary, none of my face, just here are the parts I thought were the most important, you can still compare that to the, to the original. So even that bit of... Um, you know, editing down for length, uh, people can kind of check on in a way that they can't with CNN. But if CNN licenses from me or whoever else, um, my name is on the screen. And I often will tweet, you know, they use this thing and then I can show right after it. And this is the context of it. Mm -hmm. And it's not a criticism of them saying that they took it out of context. They're using a, they're using it in a new context. They're making something new out of it. Um, but the ability to see that original sort of holds them accountable in a way that they aren't when they don't work with, but with isn't me that, or someone like me. Isn't that just pretty nefarious, though, right? Like, I'm glad <laughs> that you are moral and are like, yo, this is the actual context. But isn't that a little bit nefarious when you are taking something that's out of context and trying to form your own narrative? You're, you're not – you're lying. You're not actually yeah. telling the truth. You're fucking lying. That's not good. Um, when I was in college, there was a, I, I don't remember if this was quoting or if it was just a professor who said it to me, but uh, basically it was that when you convert anything into any medium, it becomes fiction. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. the, the step that I would take after that is if you take that as a basic truth, um, that turning anything into a medium is fiction, then what, what I seek to do and what I think media generally should seek to do is to subvert the fictionalizing element of medium. And so what I mean by that is that uh, it is inherently true that how you present something is going to 
uh, affect people's understanding of it. And nothing can replace the truth of a thing that actually happened. So, you know, if you just write about something, uh, you know, just text on a page, you could write something that is completely filled with true facts and somebody else could write it with that same situation. And it could also be a hundred percent truth. And you could have two completely different documents. Um, you could photograph something and then now you have an idea of what the thing looks like. If you film it, you have 30 photographs every second and sound, mm-hmm. right? So now, you know, you might have an idea of what it sounds like, but in a moment in time. And so when I think about live streaming, the reason that live stream works, if you're really breaking it down and thinking of it philosophically like that, is that um, you are removing the fictionalizing elements of of editing discretion, right? The, yeah. the fact of it being real time means that you are seeing a truth of the timeline. There still is the discretion of how, where somebody moves, right? If there's multiple things going on, where I go, um, my choice of what to cover, right? Like all of these things are matters of discretion that all, that any human being attempting to present something is going to have to make, uh, those sorts of choices. Um, but so the goal should be the closest to truth that is possible. In my view, that is basically to live stream and then and then present highlights, uh, you know, <laughs> so that people can see what what mattered. Right. The question after be- something being what at the thing mattered. Um, I realize that this isn't applicable to every type of journalism, though. Right. If if, um, you know, WikiLeaks releases a quarter million documents. Right. Technically, the absolute truth of that would just be to upload a quarter million documents on CNN.com. That's not how people consume, consume journalism, right? Yeah, no. So I, I would appreciate it if CNN linked to those documents when they quoted from them, right? That would be kind of the equivalent of what I'm talking about. But the point is that you know different journalists have to find their own different type of language. A lot, most independent journalists aren't going out to things. Um, the way that I'm describing. Um, and so, you know, for every individual person, they have to figure out what their exact philosophy, what their, what the way that they approach it is. And so for me, this is my way of presenting truth. It's, it's my truth of what truth is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also understand that for other people, uh, they may view it as to find a very brief way to present it where they're cutting it down and whatever. Um, I absolutely think that in the mainstream media's case, that often is done in, in, in bad faith. Yes. Um, yes. And where they aren't making that context available, uh, not just out of inconvenience or out of some ideological difference, but because they sincerely just don't want to, right? Yeah. They, that they don't actually want that that kind of accountability. Yeah, man, one hundred percent. And it's it's a giant problem. I don't I don't know how we're going to fix it. We, we we just have to continue to vote with with our dollars. But I mean. Another big problem, right? The emphasis also has to be on the individual, the people, right? I don't, when I'm confused, I try not to go to the internet for answers. I try to go to books. I like to, I like to read. Um, I, I just, I think that that's kind of the best way really to do something. If you're confused, you can generally find moments in history uh, that kind of explain why we are here or that this has happened before. Like I just figured out, I, I don't know if you know of this gentleman, do you know who uh, Hudson Lafayette Hunt is? I don't think so. No. Oh man. So he's an oil tycoon. He, he won a deed to uh, an East oil, Texas uh, claim in a card game in like the, like early late 1800s, early 1900s. And <clears throat> struck, struck black gold and became one of the wealthiest men in America and 
he had a conservative talk show or conservative show. I can't remember the name. John, will you look up H uh, H L Hunt's uh, radio show? It was it was distributed to like five hundred stations, and it was to it was to promote like conservative agendas across the state. He he was a Baptist, so he, was, he fucking hated Kennedy because he was a Catholic, and he thought that the 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 a Roman Catholic, excuse me, that the um <clears throat> that religious freedoms would be completely lost if he won the became president. And so I'm just kind of learning about this guy and I'm like, okay, so is this like the kind of the first instance of someone that has a shit ton of money that is funding, uh, that's a political activist, right? In American history. I'm sure it's not, (laughs) but (laughs) I'm sure it's not, but like you, you kind of still see that, that kind of uh, language going on with uh, fundamentalist Christian organizations. Like they're very powerful. Go ahead, John. Uh, so it was uh, it was called Lifeline. Lifeline, thank yeah. you. And also, he, while we're on he's the side, also known as H. L. Hunt. H. L. Hunt, thank you, thank you. I I think you said late eighteen hundreds earlier, uh, yeah. but then you said Kennedy. No, no, no. So like, I think he was born in he was born in eighteen. Like, I think it was like eighteen eighty nine. He died oh, in seventy six. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. So, he so that in, wasn't when he got the uh, oil thing. No, no, he got the oil thing in the like like early nineteen hundreds. So I just I I know he was okay. born in the eight. I believe John, we look up when he, I think he's like eighteen eighty nine. Eighteen eighty nine. Yep. Okay. Died. Yeah. Died in seventy four. Okay. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so definitely look into. He's a fascinating character, very fascinating. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure he's a, uh, I think he's like a white supremacist race. But I mean, he's kind of implicated in uh, the assassination of Martin Luther King, which uh, is a very fascinating thing because uh, there's a conspiracy there. If you want to go down the rabbit hole, listeners, the MLK tapes checked out. It's an investigative journalism podcast about the assassination of Martin Luther King. That's that's there's a plug for that. It's great. But uh, sorry, we're definitely off on a sidebar now. But but um, yeah. I mean, do you know anything about um? Is it, to my knowledge, I've kind of I've talked to some people, and um, they said that there's a, a pretty intense like fundamentalist Christian movement that's like kind of underground that's going on. Like, do you know anything about that? Um, I don't know that I don't know how much I would use the term underground, but I would say that in the later period of time of the Trump movement and kind of now in the I guess what I'd call the post MAGA movement, the people who participated in MAGA who are still doing activism, um, there was a strain of um, kind of connecting right wing politics with Christianity in a way that is um, fairly unique. So that that has been something that's been happening generally since essentially Reagan. Um but uh, it r- really came across a lot in that 2020 time period where you had, you know, at the Million MAGA March, people chanting, Christ is king, uh, and so forth. And so it's interesting to me, especially because I think it's a good example almost of what we were talking about before, about how Trump kind of could represent whatever to whoever. Yeah. And so, like, when I was covering the campaigns. Uh, so 2016, before the election, I actually went to a conference called Faith and Freedom. And it was basically a, a very conservative Christian conference. And uh, then primary candidate Trump uh, spoke at it. And it was very interesting to me because I've been at other Trump events, and I had been at other Trump events by then. 
And Trump's audience really liked him largely because of how profane he could be about politics in a way that other politicians wouldn't. Mm-hmm. That he'd he'd be, you know, he'd say that like, oh, it's bullshit, and everyone would be like, wow, right? He called, uh, you know, Ted Cruz uh, the p word, which I, I don't want to repeat because I don't want people to like, you know, cut it, a, you know, whatever. But at a rally, and then he said that he was quoting, but he said it out loud, and his audience loved it, and whatever, right? But at the Faith and Freedom Conference. Right. That was a speech I basically haven't seen used archivally pretty much ever since then. Um, And it wasn't because it wasn't interesting. Um, He was just much more somber. He was it sounded like he was trying to kind of imitate what he thought that a Christian conservative sounded like. Um, and I realize there might be people listening to this right now who think who who perceive Trump as a Christian conservative himself. Um, but, right, but you're laughing as I say that. Right? Um, That's funny. Yeah. But it like, but I mean, during that time period, Trump was like Trump was going to church sometimes to kind of be photographed going to church. And, you know, he was interviewed and they were it was asked, like, do you like the Old Testament better or the New Testament? He was like, I like them about the same. <laughs> <laughs> They were like, do you have a favorite verse? He's like, that's very personal. Oh, my um, God, dude. That's, so, what a great answer. What a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> but at Faith and Freedom, the point that I was sort of getting to was he just approached it with a much more somber tone, speaking mm-hmm. to that particular audience. I remember he like the kind of moments that he sounded like he was a little bit more flair. He's like, we are going to bring Jesus back into school. <laughs> like, it didn't sound like something that he had... It didn't seem very foundational to no. his platform. It didn't seem like it was an extremely important thing to him, but this was him trying to court a very significant portion of the Republican voting base. And I think that he, prob- to some extent, he relied on uh, Pence, really, to bring yeah. in the, um, you know, that kind of person in the end. Um, what's interesting now is that, you know, Pence was sort of whittled off of the Trump coalition. Um at this point, Pence's political aspirations may have hit kind of a dead end uh, because of his refusal to uh, stick with Trump in the kind of plot to um, stay in the presidency, despite the results being kind of counted, obviously, the opposite way. Yeah. Um, and Pence feeling that he had a constitutional duty not to interfere with that. Um, but at this point now, you know, if Trump runs again, he'd have to basically pick a different vice president and so forth. And so it would be very interesting to see if he was uh, looking for another conservative Christian kind of person like that or whether he would choose like a true Trump loyalist who who is, you know, like, congratulations, Don Jr. Do you want to be the vice no, president? Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, I'm kidding about that. But it, it'll be interesting to see uh, how that goes, assuming he does run again. So d- during the la- – when he was on his way out, and and I said – there's a caveat. I never loved him more. I Everyone's like, he's so bad. I'm like, dude, I related to him. I related to that man that is just – just grasping at power because there's a, there's a side of me that's like a, a megomaniac, just a crazy person. I was like, <laughs> I would want to give up power either. I would be using every trick in the book to stay in power. So I, I felt like I never related to the band more during God, his if like. If you ever run for office, do you're not just done. do just, not vote for me. Like no, I, I do not do, vote for do, Rick. Do, I will do, I will personally do, put him down if he tries to run for office. Do not vote for me. I will be a horrible president. I mean, I think I would right. be awesome, but like it would be a dictator. I would be benevolent dictator. Yeah, I could tell you about Pan American. Didn't you say you're a libertarian? You'd, I know, I know. Take no. over the world and then leave everyone alone. Oh, here's the thing, man. I'm obsessed with empire. 
like in in like from a historical. <laughs> it's like okay, like all jokes aside, I do not See, agree. Typical libertarian, I, you're you love power, but you don't want to say it. Hold on, all jokes aside, here this is very important. I'm 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 on a bit of a tirade here, but when I look at Putin, I do not agree with him invading Ukraine. I think it's awful. It's atrocious. But on one, oh, you're about to say but there <laughs> is yes, <laughs> there, there is. is a side of me that's like. I get it. Like he's just like, you know what? I want this. I'm going to I'm going to take it. Like from a historical context, we admire emp- at least I do. Empires, military <laughs> history. I'm a, I'm a giant military like I look at Genghis Khan and the Mongol the Mongol and the horde, right? That was amazing. You look at Alexander the Great, amazing. Some of the the pharaonic dynasties, amazing. The Wan dynasty, all these things. They're all bad people. They're all terrible. They, they, they saw something, they wanted it, and they fucking took it. They took a bunch of loot, slaves back, and then they got rich from doing that. It's, it's interesting if, you, if one views yourself, like, like if you're Putin, you're like, you know what, why not? Why can't I have an empire to this day? It's just interesting that one person could ha- make the decision that I want to invade. I think that that's fascinating. Again, I disagree, but like, who wouldn't want to be in that position to be able to do something like that? I get, don't ever How, how did me. you feel when... Uh- Trump was Trump was floating the idea of purchasing Greenland. Did you <laughs> did that make you feel any sort of way? So actually, funny story. He's not the first president to do that. Did you know that? Oh, yes. Uh, I, I you know I tell me about that. I believe John pulled this up because we're gonna have we're gonna dig in way back. I believe Truman offered to purchase Greenland from Denmark because it would have been it would be tactically it's a great place to have bases and whatnot like we really have um, always wanted that <clears throat> go ahead so there have been one two three four proposals by the United States to buy Greenland uh, the first was um, <clears throat> William Stewart the Secretary of State in 1867. Um, then the American ambassador to Denmark, Maurice Francis Egan in 1910. And then in 1946, uh, U.S. Senator Owen Brewster uh, thought, brought it up. I thought true. I thought one of our type in president tries to buy Truman tries to buy Greenland. I, think, okay. I thought he did. I will it, look it was, it was true. Is it, was it Harry? Yeah. Harry S. Truman. He dropped the bomb. Okay. I think it was him. Um, but, uh, yeah, 1946, the, his administration tried, they offered Denmark a hundred million dollars in gold. Yeah. To buy Greenland. Okay. I knew I wasn't fucking going crazy. That there. sounds like a pretty respectable deal. I think we should, I did. I would love to own Greenland. I mean, <laughs> Who wouldn't? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but st- st- strategically, it's a great base. It would be a great military base right. to have. But uh, I didn't know Trump offered to buy Greenland. What was his? What was? What was well, his reason? He like floated. He brought up the idea, and it was interesting because I remember a lot of. This was something that I think wasn't taken extremely seriously, and I remember like a lot of jokes were made about how he just wants like a new place for like golf courses and things like that. So <laughs> I, d- I don't honestly, from memory, I don't remember a whole lot of like serious debate taking place over the over the subject. Okay, yeah, I, I mean, he he's a character. I think I, I think he's not the best the best for America. I think that we're a little bit too fragile and the division that it would cut. So I'm, I'm hoping he doesn't run. Uh, I think we're kind of screwed. And I think that, I mean, you're going to get a lot of interesting content when, when this, when this kicks off, but um, <clears throat> outside of that, uh, all, all jokes aside, uh, don't ever vote for me. That's uh, number one, but um, 
I wanted to kind of get into like what you've, you've been doing this for a long time and have, has there ever been like a, uh, an issue or a movement that like has kind of you, maybe opened your eyes to something that you, you didn't know you cared about. And then you kind of find out that you did. Um, so that's an interesting uh, question. I think that something that I've found interesting and sort of strange to cover has been um, issues related to politi- like censorship online mm-hmm. um, and specifically like content moderation basically on social media. And this has been challenging for me because um, I try not to do advocacy for any kind of issue publicly. Uh, right. I, I don't want to sort of, you know, if I was to, to state openly a position on uh, gun rights or environmental things or taxes or whatever. Right. Then it, it might undermine the perspective of my of my work. Um, and but at the same time, I fairly vigorously advocate for the right to do what my work is. And so I see um, essentially arguments for free speech, whatever that can mean. And there's a lot of ways that that can go, uh, but to be consistent with the act of objective journalism. So even if I'm not trying to guide people's political philosophies, I am trying to sort of guide the world away from uh, content moderation that comes at the expense of journalists. Um, And so it's been strange for me because to a large extent, that's been an issue that the political right has adopted, um, but I don't see that as actually historically consistent. Um, so it is to be to be sure, it is absolutely true that that you know the political right has its fair share of being basically censored, kicked off of social media, and so forth. And I, w- I also want to be clear that when I say censor, I don't mean illegally censored. I don't mean being censored by the state. Um, but that they they say something that thing is forbidden to be said, and then they are removed from from the internet or from from some specific internet site. <clears throat> yeah. um, the right has taken that up as an issue, you know, in the last four years in particular. Uh, but as as a general issue, free speech has historically been uh, more of something that was talked about on the left. It has often been the right that has threatened, for example, music. You know, oh that that hip hop and that heavy metal. That's what's really gonna mm-hmm. you know cut, destroy the children. Video, the video games. games. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like video games are are quintessentially speech. Right. They are art. They are an artistic expression. Pornography on the right um, as well. Right. I mean, yeah. very recently that's been. Um, you know, and it's been interesting because the right has been, you know, for all their talk of free speech, like there, there's been an, a much greater abundance, like in the last year of of the right having um, concerns about that, and so so now you have sort of the left talking about, you know, if like Democrats in Congress versus Republicans in Congress, we'll put it that way, as opposed to me saying the left and the right. Um, the Republicans in Congress are spending a lot of time uh, talking about their fear over, like you just said, like sexual content on the internet and so forth. Um, whereas, and they want to try to regulate that away, <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Or they feel that it's a bad, in, that, that companies, even with PG rated content are threatening, uh, sort of the, the moral innocence of children. And so this is kind of the issue happening in Florida where, you know, uh, Ron DeSantis is taking away special tax status that was granted to Disney, um, essentially because of, of the belief that Disney is, is presenting, you know, content that that teaches kids about sexuality and again i don't want to try to take sides in that particular uh claim or argument or whatever um but it is but it is obviously clear that the right is has taken a step back toward like what they 
were doing very much like in the 90s about music and video games and so mm-hmm. forth. Um, the left, in, or I should say the Democratic Party in Congress, when they drag social media executives in front of them, uh, they're the ones saying, why aren't you um, removing this kind of content? And why are you allowing that kind of content? And so both both sides are kind of weaponizing the concept of, of preventing speech against the other in certain contexts. And so I personally see the way that it affects um, uh, journalism as being... Um, not bound by any particular side, right? So my my journalism is not particularly, um, you know, favored by one side over the other, right? I think I have a fairly diverse political audience. Um, and yet on Facebook, I have been, I've had my account entirely removed and then uh, had to basically fight to get it back by advocating. On Twitter, my entire account was marked the way that porn is for five months following January 6th. It literally, it said any anything that I tweeted that had uh, a link, a text, a, a a link, video or photo, anything other than text, it would say um, this is potentially sensitive uh, content. Wow. And then my entire profile was marked as potentially sensitive content. Wow! And so you would have to change your settings to even be able to then press the button to see my profile, and then press the button in order to see my my tweets. Um, and eventually that was also uh, sort of changed. But then, and YouTube has demonetized my entire channel twice, both times only changing that back after it received significant media attention. So it's affected me a lot. And as I've watched um, political you know, journalists who cover politics uh, suffer these same sorts of issues and often have a lot less success fighting them uh, against these big corporations... Um, that has really affected the left as well as the right. There was a purge in 2018 on Facebook um, that largely focused on like cannabis uh, pages and anti-war pages and pro-Palestine pages. And oh, so shit. those issues are not exclusive exclusive to the left, um, but those are issues that would generally be associated with with left and libertarian and anarchism uh, as opposed to the right. But you but you didn't see. John Jr. complaining about that and so forth, right? <laughs> so um, my my point, I guess, is that that has been the one issue that I have uh, sort of advocated on, where I've where I've actually said when I think that a policy is is fundamentally bad or dangerous or going to be used in in an incorrect way, because I have examples in my own life of my own work being affected by that, and I and that's something on which I cannot just remain like you know uh, unable to speak out. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. <clears throat> the bottom line is, like, when I see people go down that road of saying, like, oh, we can't have this. We got to have every single type of speech. I mean, yes, it sucks. Like, do do I, as a as a as a black person, want to see uh, hate speech on the internet? No, not really. But like, I would never pass a law or do anything to get that taken down. Right? Like, I I think that it all needs to be out because the best thing. The best thing for the the best thing against bad speech is more speech, right? Like you, you you need to have. I can I can cite a few examples. Like um, uh, one of the Fred Phelps, the Westboro Baptist Church. One of his daughters uh, was would get on Twitter and freak out, and then through her interactions with people, she'd wait. Why is this person going to go to hell? Like this is a really good, like nice person. I I didn't know these things about the Bible. Like wait, am I crazy? Right. So the the type like you're you're. If you if you if you start taking if you start 
picking and choosing what people see in a very curated form, like you're not going to get those, those opportunities to save people or change their minds. Um, and, and also with, with someone like you that is putting out, you know, live streaming things that maybe they don't want to see, maybe there's a, a different angle that these tech companies don't agree with. Like that's also very dangerous because, um, <clears throat> you know, that's silencing you. And when you start silencing human beings, they go off the radar. They don't get any, any, they, they get really, uh, into a echo chamber, so to speak, and they're not going to ever have their ideas challenged. So I am a hundred percent on, you know, I share your opinion that it's, it's very dangerous when you start eliminating different viewpoints and different types of speech. I think the more, the better, right? I, I need to know. Well, I also need to know how crazy you are, mm-hmm. right? You know, I don't want to want to just be saying things that I agree with. <clears throat> right. And so to give a very specific example of kind of the problem that I think we're sort of alluding to, and also the issue of the fact that it's not usually humans making these decisions in a well thought about way, it's no. often robots sort of doing it for them. Um, in 2019, the first time I was demonetized by YouTube, one of the videos that they found that they took down along with the demonetization of the whole channel, so clearly it was part of what motivated them, was... Uh, I had a video outside the American-Israel Political Action Conference where every year basically supporters of America funding Israel and giving them weapons and so forth gather and uh, generally pro-Palestine protesters uh, are outside um, basically countering it. Mm. And there was actually a situation that – I've covered that a few different times. But there was a situation that I filmed at the uh, 2019 iteration of this, so early 2019 – where as people are arguing back and forth about this subject, um, a Holocaust denier shows up. A guy shows up, and his point of view is that uh, Israel doesn't have a right to exist because, and then he basically spews disinformation about the Holocaust. And what was really interesting to me that happened was that uh, people from the pro-Israel side and people from the pro-Palestine side Uh, sort of joined forces, as it were, for that moment. And for about 10 minutes, people on both sides of it were arguing with him that foundationally his beliefs were were batshit insane, Mm -hmm. (laughs) to put it lightly. Yeah, yeah. Um, And again, typically I wouldn't take... Like, like I'm not describing to you my views of the Israel-Palestine conflict, um, but I'm certainly comfortable saying, you know, that the Holocaust denier is wrong because he's making a statement of fact that is is false. Um, Anyhow, they argue back and forth with him, and uh, so I posted a video that said something like Holocaust, titled something like Holocaust Denier uh, Confronted by Pro-Israel and Pro-Palestine Activists, or something like that. And it was just raw footage of them arguing with him. Mm-hmm. And the obviously, I think that to somebody watching it, the takeaway is that odd moment of unity. Um, but to YouTube... Um, who set a policy against Holocaust denial and then has robots enforcing that policy, it does not know the difference. Um, you know, a robot, is pro- its process more or less probably looks like transcribing what was said. Uh, it's not making a difference between uh, speakers and the context and the why and whatever. It just sees this guy repeatedly uh, making false claims about the Holocaust, and then it says, oh, that's Holocaust denial content, takes it down, demonetizes the channel, right? Um, so part of the issue is that when you rely on non-human moderators to make these choices, it's it's never going to err on the side of um, being correct. And for someone like me, after months of, of advocating for the account to be uh, restored to its full status, they admitted the mistake. Um, but there are a lot of people whose content have been removed and they don't have any kind of uh, remedy like that. In particular, I've heard from some people how like, 
um, content creators who were dealing with LGBT content back in 2008 to 2010, a lot of that stuff, YouTube would just remove it because they would just assume that if you're talking about sexuality, you're porn, right? <laughs> like uh, sort of a ridiculous uh, leap. Um, but that content would go would go down and they had absolutely no remedy for it even, you know, to a decade later. Um, so any anything that they, any new policy that they pass, it's my opinion that they have to be prepared to have humans um, evaluate those things on a, on a situation by situation basis. And uh, that just clearly isn't happening where, where when I use their automate, their, you know, press a button to appeal and then write an appeal many times that kind of thing I've appealed, the appeal is denied. And then I publicly advocate about the specific uh, case. And then they come back and say, Oh, we made a mistake, but I, I am a public figure who's sort of capable of pressuring them that way. And, and the average YouTube user absolutely isn't. Yeah, man, that's fucked. It's you're messing with someone's yeah. livelihood. And so, yeah. you know, if you're not a public figure, you're, you're just not, you're just screwed. Like that's, that's, uh, it's not good. That is not good. And, you know, to look at it from their perspective, they get millions. I didn't even know how many millions of videos are uploaded to YouTube each day. So you kind of have to have algorithms like enforcing this. Cause it's just, it's too, it's too much to handle the amount of data that it's goes a hundred new hours of video per minute. Uh, <laughs> the last time that I read a stat on that, <clears throat> that's insane. That's insane. So yeah. it's an impossible, it's an impossible predicament. But I mean, bottom line is you, you, you still, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know what to do. I, I, I don't know. You're lucky. You're very fortunate that, that you can get that switch back. Have you had, you haven't had any problems uh, since then, have you? Oh, I have. I mean, so most recently, uh, to use an example, I filmed um, Coe Griffin is an elected official from New Mexico, mm -hmm. and he was tried in Washington, D.C. for his involvement in January 6th. Oh, he had shit. been charged with two uh, two misdemeanors. Uh, basically, he didn't he wasn't accused of engaging in violence and and he didn't go inside the building. He's one of the only people who didn't go inside the building or hurt anybody and still got charged. Mm. And um Basically, he climbed up some scaffolding and so forth, and then while above, he read, uh, or he, he led, I should say, the crowd in a prayer over a bullhorn. Mm. And he was, he was charged with um, entering restricted grounds, and that's on the basis that uh, Vice President Pence was physically present at the Capitol. And uh, which makes it under Secret Service jurisdiction, which is how they come up with that misdemeanor mm -hmm. and uh, disorderly conduct, essentially saying that his leading the prayer was sort of provoking, um, you know, the, the people who were riding. And he uh, got a split verdict. Um, he actually went to a bench trial. He was he over two days. Uh, the case was presented to a judge. And ultimately, the judge basically said he did trespass, but. I'm not going to call prayer disorderly conduct that, mm -hmm. that if anything, an act of prayer probably had a calming effect on the crowd. It's not like he, he probably would have been found guilty of that. If instead of praying, he said, you know, <laughs> let's burn this motherfucker. <laughs> <or something." laughs> um, so in any event, he, you know, I think that's quite interesting, right? Elected official uh, guilty on one, not guilty on the other. And he's only the second January 6th defendant to even go to trial at all. And so when he exited the courtroom, he had a lot to say uh, and spoke for about a half hour. And so I filmed him speaking to the press. I asked a few questions during it, but basically I, I published a half hour video 
of just uncut. Here's what Coe Griffin said when he exited the um, the courthouse. And so you, backing up a second, YouTube has a standard that they created essentially during 2020 and then expanded upon following January 6th, where uh, for certain types of things that would generally not be allowed on YouTube, such as uh, documentation of certain types of violence or bullying, um, that or hate speech being another one, that uh, you ha- that they have what's called an ESDA exception, educational, scientific, documentary, or artistic. So mm. you're allowed to show, for example, uh, maybe some a swastika and somebody saying Sig Hail or something. If it's in a music video and it's actually a music video about how Nazis are bad, mm-hmm. uh, or you know, a Hitler speech would be allowed as an educational resource in a video, but it would not be allowed uh, from an account called you know, white supremacist, you know, <laughs> white supremacist RS. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Whatever. Um, but so, so the ESDA exception, I actually think that to the extent that you're going to have these policies, I think that the ESDA exception actually makes perfect sense that, that these sorts of things, uh, are allowed when in the context of, of education, science, documentary, and art. Um, but when it comes to two subjects currently, YouTube requires a standard that they never actually articulated until they started censoring on this basis. Mm. Um, so they have a countervailing views standard now only for COVID and what they call election disinformation. And so what that means is that if somebody makes a claim uh, about the efficacy of vaccines, for example, or the origins of COVID or whatever, um, that that isn't even allowed in an educational documentary, scientific or artistic context, unless you actually actively counteract those uh, views. And the same thing is true of the election. The, The sentence, the election was stolen, is flatly disallowed on the platform. Um, unless you actively show something that goes against it, even if you're not the one who said it in the first place. So the first time that I encountered this was that I filmed the Trump speech on January 6th, 70 minutes long, beginning to end from the National Mall. I filmed as people reacted to hearing Trump's speech, extremely obviously historical moment, right? This is the moment that he's allegedly inciting an insurrection at the moment that he's allegedly inciting them. And I'm surrounded by the people he's allegedly inciting, right? If you were to, uh, agree with the impeachment of Trump, like this is the impeachment of an American president hinges on the moments of portrayed in this video. And YouTube took it down. They called my video election disinformation. Um, it's footage of, at the time, the president of the United States speaking. It's, it is an absolutely true account of a situation that took place. And YouTube, of course, believes that what Trump said is false. And therefore, my video is false. So their expectation was you can have that video back up if you post a countervailing view where you basically say the election wasn't stolen what the or fu- you present a source that <laughs> that has that. And so what I have now had to do whenever I have a video that basically has any aspect of election or COVID is I put a text at the bottom that is apparently sufficient to satisfy this that says countervailing views. And what I write is usually countervailing views as required by big tech. (laughs) Um, And then colon. And then I link to .gov websites that deal with these things. So what I usually link to is uh, CISA.gov slash rumor control Mm -hmm. is a website that describes election integrity 
uh, methods and uh, cdc.gov slash vaccines talks about vaccine information. And so I stick those at the bottom every time. And that and that's what allows my videos to stay up, even when they have that sort of thing. Um, returning to Coe Griffin, the, th- the situation that happened only a few weeks ago, when he exited the courthouse, one of the things that he said was that he still thinks the election was stolen. He basically feels that his behavior on January 6th was in part justified because he still thinks the election was stolen. Um, I actually included at the bottom of the screen countervailing views uh, and then those websites that I just described. And YouTube took it down anyway and called the video election disinformation. <laughs> and I appealed and said I was complying with your exact standard. I put the text that you that you require at the bottom of the screen. And the appeal was denied, and then I started posting about it publicly, and then they fixed it. Um, But again, if I was an independent journalist, some freelancer who just caught that but didn't have an outlet to sell it to, so I stuck it on YouTube, I'd have a strike on my account, you know, forever that couldn't go away. And to just give, I know I'm dwelling on about this, but like, to give one other example... This was the most most absurd example I've seen of this, but it shows just how obtuse the uh, big tech systems can be is that I filmed on inauguration day, two weeks after two weeks to the day after January 6th, uh, Joe Biden is inaugurated. And out of fears for over January 6th, uh, type stuff happening again, the whole city's locked down. So there's barely any activism in the city happening. Um, you mentioned the Westboro Baptist Church earlier. Mm-hmm. There's a group that was very similar to Westboro Baptist. It, well, it turns out it wasn't them, but they had similar signs. Uh, you know, God hates, disparaging term for for gay people and mm-hmm. so forth. Um, that showed up outside Union Station. So, you know, about a mile from where the inauguration is taking place. And it actually wasn't their words that caused my video to go down that day. It was, as they are spewing uh, essentially hate speech, right? Describing um, people as uh, whores and so forth. And and in some cases, in a very targeted way, um, they were pointing out, you know, someone on the street who they perceived to be underdressed and they literally, and they called her a whore, like to her face. <laughs> sure. um, the, what was interesting was some people who were not organized counter protesters or anything like that, just sort of started yelling at them from across the street. And one of the people was who was actually shirtless at the time. He took well. He took his shirt off be, to make a point about that they're calling this woman a whore because her, uh, you know, shorts are too short or whatever. And he yells at them. And I re- and now I've watched it like a million times, so I remember it verbatim. He says, "Correct your hate. Correct your hate. Correct your hate." He's screaming at them across the street. This, but I'll say it in normal tone. Um, and then he says, "I still believe the election was stolen, but you, sir." <laughs> are preaching the wrong form of Christianity. That woman that you just called a whore, that's a woman, a human fucking being. Those were the exact words that he said. Mm-hmm. YouTube took down this video and suspended me for a week from the platform because he said in one part of one of those sentences, I still believe the election was stolen. Um, so this is an eight minute video of Whoa. a hate group and people confronting them. And one shirtless random guy across the street in one half of one sentence out of him yelling at them says, I still believe the election was stolen. And bam, that video is now removed for election disinformation. And I was actually suspended from the platform for posting for a week. Um, Obviously what happened, I assume is that a computer uh, analyzes it and, and it doesn't care about any of those other things, but it literally just sees the words. I still believe the election was stolen. And it can't tell the difference between me filming a shirtless guy yelling at somebody across the street and saying that versus 
you know, a guy with a red ball cap talking into his webcam and saying those exact words, and that being the point of his video. But even when I brought this to the attention of YouTube, they actually stood by it on this one. They said, well, you didn't have the countervailing view. And I was like, the whole thing's countervailing views. He's he's the only person who thinks what he said. And they were like, but yeah, you didn't counter that. Man. That's the view. <laughs> you have to, you know, put the put the warning under. And so I dislike it because my whole thing is primary source video. And as far as I'm concerned, even adding that little bit of text is actually outside my style. I don't like to to add a counter. I don't want to argue with the people in the videos and have pop-ups describing why they're wrong. Right. I want my, I trust my audience to figure it out. <laughs> um, so I think it's unfortunate, but that's the, that's the policy they're working with right now. And I think that in general, it's going to be the people who have less power and are more, more marginalized that are going to actually get the shit end of the stick um, when it comes to this problem. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's something, you know, something's got to be done. Um, they got to get better. Cause that's, it's, I, I understand their point, but like when they're fucking with people like you and countless other creators and independent journalists and stuff are just like maybe disagreeing with like a certain narrative that, that's going on right now, like it, it's kind of dangerous. Like I, there's part of me that believes these things are utilities, right? And that we, we have to apply the same, the same types of strict free speech uh that we have that's protected under you know with the united states government mm-hmm. you know but then there's another part of it. it's like oh they're private businesses but i don't know man i i really i like i i need to look into this more you know i, I but i think clarence thomas uh the supreme court justice i think his opinion that they need to be deemed as utilities is interesting i haven't looked at the 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 counterpoints to that and why that's negative i i don't know i'm just saying from at a glancing pass, I think that's something that I definitely should look into. I mean, I got to bring a lawyer on. We got to talk about that because that's yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I struggle with it a lot because um, on that on that exact subject, like the way the way you define like who that who that applies to could you know could basically like cause issues for anybody else, right? So I, you know, I have a platform myself, right? I have a website, news to share, right? Mm -hmm. And not everyone is entitled to be covered by me. Not everybody is entitled to report for me. Um, And so if you were to find, like, what definition could you offer that would include uh, no censorship of otherwise legal content on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, uh, but not these other companies, right? Like, how do you, like, where exactly is the line drawn on that front, um, I think that that's, that's uniquely challenging. The other thing is that from my perspective, looking at it historically, it's not generally governments that are protecting speech. It's usually governments that are infringing speech. This is why, this is why the founders put the, put that one right at the beginning. Of the I, Bill know, of Rights. Like, I know. It's like, a- uh, we need to stop the state from doing that because, because historically it's the state that jeopardizes those things. And, while in America it's fairly unique that it is less common that the state is the one infringing uh, speech, I certainly don't want law enforcement dealing with that. Right? No. I, I don't trust them to make decisions about what's censorship and not. And I also realize that these companies are global. And uh, so if you're going to trust China or India – uh, right to who have their own restrictions on certain types of speech. Russia just banned Instagram outright. Yep. You know, I I don't know that it sets a great precedent either to have governments uh, choosing the way that uh, that that these companies handle themselves. Because if that government uh, ends up choosing 
a dictator, right? You know, what what methods are is that person going to use to protect their power? Probably censorship, right? One hundred percent. Assume that that the leadership is always going to be committed to to liberal democracy, uh, yep. the way that that you would hope uh, as you impose a regulation like that. One hundred percent. That's and that's the problem, right? It, it's an interesting idea, but. Again, everything, pretty much everything that the government touches turns to shit. So that, you know, yeah, we, I, we just, we just Twitter. have. Twitter.gov? Yeah, t- I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I'd want to use that one. I'm sorry, don't you mean Twitter.musk? Let's Twitter. go. Musk, yeah. Let's go. I'm excited about You're that. You're the only one who's excited, excited about it. I'm excited about it. Listen. I'm thinking about buying some stock, but I don't know. I got to talk to I got to talk to some some people that know a little bit more about money than I do. It seems like a, like a safe bet, but uh, it, can I it ask is you a question? Actually, on Musk, please on Musk. So you, if you're, I understand why people are excited about Musk, and I and I really genuinely hope that that if that's the way forward, it's not a done deal yet. But if he owns it, I really hope that some of these issues go away from Twitter, and maybe that other ones follow. Yeah. Um. With that being said. Elon Musk lives in within the United States and he ha- he owns companies and he so he has a lot to lose. And so fundamentally, he is a person who could probably be threatened. Right. He has contracts with the government. Right. Yeah. The government there. I remember there was some talk about when he smoked marijuana on uh, uh, Joe Rogan's show. Like, oh, if he's if he's consuming cannabis, that actually makes him ineligible for government contracts. Mm-hmm. Did he just lose everything by smoking a joint? Yes. Like SpaceX. It was, uh, a, it was a, some Air Force generals that were kind of pissed off about this and his stock plummeted and whatnot. So, yes, I'm aware. Right. <clears throat> so if. If there was a controversial uh, story, so let's say the Hunter Biden thing, for example, right? Jack Dorsey has taken back, Jack Dorsey has apologized, basically. He said they made the wrong decision uh, suspending the New York Post and 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 de-escalating reporting about the Hunter Biden laptop at the time, and and I think that Jack Dorsey saying that is probably even more validated in the current time period, where now even the Washington Post and the New York Times are kind of posting these like apology stories about how we were wrong and we should have you know let that be reported on. It shouldn't have been a verboten subject. Mm-hmm. Um, if Elon Musk uh, was the uh, owner of Twitter and Joe Biden is the president, you know, what if he said, I'll take, I'll take away your contracts or I'll arrest you. Right. <laughs> or what, Like whatever, when you have just one person uh, there's, and then that person has so much to lose. Are you at all worried that uh, Elon Musk could be sort of threat? He talks a big game, but what if he's threatened by the state? Do you feel confidently I've, that he'd be able to stand up strong on that? Number one, I've never thought about it that way. So I appreciate that question. I think that, well, it's not just going to be him. He's going to have a board of directors, right? And I think that the first thing he's going to set to do is separate himself from this thing. I think that he wants to own it and then maybe control it and institute some of the policies that he believe, deems are fundamentally necessary, which is like as much freedom as humanly possible, right? And then outside of that, he might step away. And then I don't, you know, I don't know if his plan is to make a shit ton of money and sell it. I, I don't know. I, from my understanding, it, it's going to be taken. Uh, it's going to be a private company. I think it's it's very interesting what you say, um, especially um, with the idea that he has a, a lot of lucrative government contracts, especially with SpaceX. I also think that he's a leader in a lot of those technologies because he was able to beat out was a blue. 
Origin or whatever. Blue it, Origin. Blue Origin. Yeah. Blue the Origin. Bezo- yeah. Bezos company. The space so I, penis. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> I think. I think that we are in in the Twitterverse, right? Which I'm not really that active on. I think we're in good. I think we're in good hands. Like if you look at everything he's done and everything he's been able to accomplish, I think that he's probably the the best person for that. I think his first move is probably to bring Dorsey back. Dorsey's kind of been ostracized and stepped away from Twitter, and I think maybe he has him run it. I don't know. You bring up a good point. I would say that for the most part. I don't think that those attack vectors that you that you speak of, I think that he's probably like two steps ahead of him. I don't know, though. Good point. John, go ahead. Uh, so just to add to uh, just focusing on Elon, I don't like Elon Musk, but we'll set that aside. Just on this issue to issue or to echo what Ford was saying, my issue, what weirds me out about it is that you have a situation where you have essentially an oligarch uh, controlling what has become the public square. Um, Twitter is really one of the few, if not one of the only uh, social media platforms that is live that you can like, it is the best source of finding news or of finding information. If you are not literally there happening is looking, watching people live tweeting about it and seeing all this stuff coming through and having that kind of powerful platform threatened by someone who has a history of having thin skin and retaliating in like ways that are not possible for the average person against journalists, critics, etc. That scares me. Uh well, just because he he's he's kind of an erratic guy. But time know? out. Can you please cite some examples of him attacking? Yeah, I, I'll put in show I'll put in the show notes, but I know off the top of my head, I know that there was a former Tesla employee who started a YouTube channel that after he had complained internally about safety issues, like the whole thing with the the Tesla's just spontaneously combusting, um, had posted uh, critical reviews of the Tesla cars on YouTube while maintaining that there was no uh no information that was trade secrets or anything it was all publicly available information uh was fired by by tesla uh there was an instance where there was a journalist who was writing it was either a critique of musk personally or of tesla as a company um was critical of them and actually had a a pre-order for a Tesla car. Elon Musk personally went and canceled that pre-order without his knowledge, violating the contract that he signed while pre-ordering a car from his company. Um, Those are the two that I can think of off the top of my head, but there, there's at least a few more that he's just, he is, he's, he, he floats that line between eccentric genius and eccentric villain. That is just it's it's it 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 freaks me out that somebody so, for lack of a better word, unstable or unpredictable has so much power I, I, to control something so vital. I don't know if it's fair that you can call him like unstable and unpredictable. Like he's been he's I mean he's he's very unpredictable. And also, time out real quick. What's the point of having fuck you money if you never get to say fuck you? 
I mean, this is, true, this is, that is but essentially also, that is essentially what he did. He just said, "You know what? I'm the richest man on the planet, or one of one, right. of, one of two. Technically, Depends probably not. Probably not. Yeah. There's definitely some Saudi in reality. Not. It's all value. It's all valuation. He has but, almost all of his assets are all just hypothetical. I I I, I, I I'm also one of my nicknames is the agent of chaos. So I I like it. <laughs> I like it. I want to see what happens. I think that I think mm-hmm. that if anything, it's going to get better. I really do. I mean, in in Time terms though, like you know, like Ford was saying, traditionally, free speech is an issue that falls on the left of center, and also it's generally the state that's trespassing against people. We're in a system now that no one could account for in previous history that corporations are essentially the state, especially when they are that big. When you have Twitter, that's arguably bigger and more important now than say ma bell was a hundred years ago or you have youtube and google and facebook that control so how much i mean you would know ford how much of your stuff do you get through facebook links and through just people sharing stories it's a massive vector that it's too dangerous to have that controlled by unaccountable singular parties it's something that needs to be like regulated as a platform and as a not as a what do they they fight because they don't want to be regulated as a a platform platform versus publisher publisher yes yeah mostly not a meaningful distinction in in the context Mm -hmm. of section 230 it's just who wrote the the thing right all Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know you're you're a platform when somebody else wrote the thing that's on it and you're a publisher Mm -hmm. when you're you know when twitter tweets as twitter they're accountable to that when Mm -hmm. i tweet Twitter can't be sued for what I tweeted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, it's 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 important to have these these platforms be open because you'll run into a circumstance where, you know, instead of you have, you know, the government trying to shut down a newspaper, you have just a social media account, like everything that's happened to you on YouTube. They yeah. don't like it, whether it's personal or it's just an algorithm. It, but that's it, what's too it's too volatile. But that's what Musk is trying to change. I mean, don't you think it's kind of fucking ridiculous that Putin's on Twitter and Trump's not? I mean, yeah, I mean, I we got to put him. But back I don't on. think I don't think anything changes if you put Trump back on, except I, you but, just get more entertainment. I did, you know? but, but I'm saying they shouldn't have. I don't think they should have kicked him off. Like I, I think that I think that right. Elon having that. I think that dumb shit like that is going to stop. I think it's going to get a lot better. I, I mean, this is a man that, that that has seen that we are storing carbon in our oceans and has made elect EV vehicles sexy and people want yeah. to buy them. This is a man that's trying to but get us has to Mars. No, he has no legitimate solution to actually solve those problems. He's just trying to make money off the fact that you can make an electric car that's going to be powered by coal-powered electricity. Okay. You have we'll to keep well, making... Listen, that's not... Not to mention lithium mining is horrible for the environment. I understand all of that, but we gotta fucking do something, John. <laughs> we gotta do... Right, right. Sorry, this... Uh, by the way, uh, Ford, this, <laughs> this is, is a long-standing long standing <laughs> disagreement uh, because I'm Team Elon and he is like anti for whatever reason. You're wrong, but uh, lots of reasons. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it kind of seems like it goes with your philosophy that you were saying that you like you'd like to be a dictator who then is a libertarian dictator or something. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, like, like Pinochet. Are you going to try to say Pinochet was a libertarian? No, 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 no. I would, I would not say that Pinochet was a libertarian. No, uh, the um, no, but like Elon is is taking a huge amount of power, and it sounds like you 
Rick are comfortable with that because you believe that he will use it benevolently, that he yes. that he actually will defend speech the way. So this is why I'm saying, assuming he buys it, I I hope that that's true. Me too. Um, Same. But I'm not sure that I'm just going to intrinsically trust any billionaire, right? Yeah, I mean, it could have just, to just as easily, like. You know, if Bill Gates uh, bought Twitter, I think that you'd, like, yeah, you'd be panicking. Yeah, no, I'd be freaking well, yeah. the fuck yeah, out. I'd be course. like, that's just right. No one, like, yeah, everybody's oh, panicked about. He has the fu money, right? Would everybody's you, no, panicked about be... Elon Musk buying Twitter, but they're not panicked about the fact that the single largest private landowner in the country it's that Bill owns Gates. the most farmland in the U.S. is Bill Gates. I know, dude. Don't, like, we're not going to both. Get... Both of those consolidations of power are bad, and like the ideas of like the the whole Silicon Valley disrupt kind of ethos is great for business but in reality and for society it's not you know if jeff bezos was the one buying twitter he would have to ban guillotine as a search from amazon (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) um but in, in all seriousness, I mean, it sounds like e- like Elon's the one billionaire who's who's going after this and then saying, you know, that he's going to lead it by free speech. But it's a lot of power to be in one hand because mm-hmm. if he, if he ju- if he changed his opinion, he he very well could could turn it the exact opposite way. So yeah, it's, so the difference between you know the the perspectives it sounds like here on on this is do you trust that one person and can you trust any one person that's i don't true. have a great answer to that i, I don't i don't no. have a great answer for that i don't know him we got to get him on the podcast that's i guess we're gonna have to just we're gonna have to keep cranking that <laughs> we'll out just call grimes and yeah. see if she can get him. we we will we will see what happens we will see. i just i feel i feel personally it's not my life i'm not on twitter that much uh i go there if something big happens I think it's a good thing. I think, but time will tell. And you know what, Ford, we're going to have to have you back on uh, after we'll have to do a follow up on this. But uh, we have, I don't want to be respectful of your time. We're, we're, we're running a little bit late, but I've been, I had a great time. So where can the people, where can the good people find you? Uh, g- give us all the links, all the things. For sure. So uh, my outlet is News to Share. That's News the number to uh, share. And so on Facebook, it's News to Share. On YouTube, it's News to Share. And I'm at Ford Fisher on Twitter. And I also have a Patreon. Um, so uh, if you are the type of person who would like to support this kind of work, especially if you start following it and you find it valuable, uh, you can sign up for my Patreon and uh, contribute a small mar- a small amount every month. And that uh, makes a big difference in creating a budget for me to hire people as well as uh, go out and cover things myself. So, uh, thanks for listening. And I hope you, uh, check my stuff out. All right, man. Thank you so much. Uh, as, as always, it's, it's been a pleasure. We've got to get you back on dude. Thanks so much for doing this. Good people like, and subscribe, uh, give us a five, five stars on Apple and also check out our clips channel as well, uh, with the best and the, the best talking pieces from the show, all wrapped up in a nice, smooth, easy to consume video. All right, folks, we'll talk to you next week.